All right, we are continuing on with our Wednesday nights in, in an equipping fashion. That's why we call it equip, and we want you to be equipped. And so by that, we mean that on Sundays we pick apart Scripture, we go verse by verse. You've seen how we've done this in, in the book of John, and then how Will did a great job this, this past week. And so um, on Wednesday nights, what we want to do is really take some topics and things that are going on in our culture, we want to work through them. Um, so Clint did that when we were looking at areas of government and did a fantastic job. I guarantee you I could not have done what he did. That was awesome. And so I love his giftedness. I love what God laid on his heart and how he laid all that out. If you want to go back and listen to it, I believe those are on podcast or, internet, or what are they on the website? Yeah, you can go on the webpage. Clint's aren't, so don't worry about what I just said. Um, But it was great. Sorry you missed it. And then um, Ace came through and really hit on anxiety and depression, um, biblically what it means to be sad, what it means to mourn. I hate we missed this last week. I heard it was amazing, but I will go back and listen to that one on the website, which you can do too. And so now we're looking at what you see here, the depravity of the sexual revolution, the dismantling of godly authority. I mean, I know this is what you want to do. You want to show up on a Wednesday night and your pastor to talk about a sexual revolution. And you think this is a little awkward for you to be addressing this. You don't normally address things like this. Uh, We do, but yet there's not kids in the room either. So I'm going to be a little bit more open, but also sensitive that we have a mixed audience but we have to address these things. And, and you may be thinking, you know, I, I feel uncomfortable already, but I, I bet, and I'm pretty sure that almost all of us would not be uncomfortable if we were to turn on Netflix and we were to see a title like this. We would go, hmm, interesting. Let me watch it. And so it's, it's the job of the church to address these matters. And let us be clear um, where we are to stand and why we find ourselves in the position that we do today. Because when we look In our culture, and not just our culture here in the United States, but throughout the world, people are obsessed with sex. And it's spreading throughout our livelihoods, and it's impacting all generations. And we are going to look at a few areas with this tonight. It's really just an introduction um, of the dismantling of godly authority, because it begins with authority. Then next week, what we will look at is the impact of pornography, Uh, stemming from this. And after that, we will look at the LGBTQ, the the drive of homosexuality uh, among our culture and our world today. Where does that come from? Why is it so strong? Did it just arrive overnight? How long has this been building up? And then we'll look at uh, gender dysphoria, uh, gender confusion, transgender. And why is it that we have people who are affirming this? Why even in the highest positions of our land do we have leaders stepping forward and saying, yes, it's okay for a boy who would say he's a girl to participate in girls' sports? It's absolutely ludicrous, but yet people are treating like this is like normal. Where did this come from? And so really the, one of the goals of this, and I'll mention a couple of others, but one of the goals is to, to realize that this is not happening overnight, Uh, These things have been going on since the very beginning, so that's where we're going to start tonight in Genesis 3. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3, first book of the Bible, third chapter, and we'll we'll begin there. Um, But as we see the sexual revolution, an effect of it is that it's turned the moral world upside down. Uh, Whether you believe this or not, we used to live in a more moral culture, um, 
may we say, a more godly culture, more uh, godly characteristics and attributes were among us as a nation than they are now. And we'll really see that next week when we dive into pornography. So if we want to get people here on a Wednesday night, let's just tell them we're studying pornography and we'll see how that goes, okay? But the goal of this series is not to whine and complain about the current depravity of the sexual revolution. That's not our goal, but to have a better understanding of this ongoing problem and how we might best respond appropriately to them. You hear that? Let's have a better understanding so we'll know how to respond appropriately, how to respond godly, how to respond biblically to this great problem among us. And so let's look in Genesis 3. It'll be brief tonight. Um, We have a a little bit to cover. I do want to say before um, we dive into Genesis 3, this is a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. You can see it there on the screen. If you want to get a copy, um, it's only a short 400 pages. I mean, you can read it in a week, right? It's done. Some of you can. Some of you can probably read it in a couple of days. Uh, but this is a great book. Uh, it's a big resource, of which I'm going to draw from tonight. Um, but Carl Truman does an excellent job of just showing throughout history how what we're facing today did not just arrive overnight. Uh, it has been building through centuries. And, in fact, from the very beginning, as we'll see in God's Word. So Genesis 3. Um, we're looking at a very familiar passage. I think it's important that we often return to the garden for it makes sense of where we are today. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Now there it is. That's really what I'll point out tonight in Genesis 3. Did God actually say? It's a challenge of authority. When Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden, He was challenging God's authority. Satan had no authority. He wanted some authority. He wanted authority over the world. And so he's tempting them and challenging them with God's authority. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the servant, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So there it is, once again, challenging the authority of God. Eve pretty much verbatim responds in the same with, with, with the instructions of the Lord, except for God never said you could touch it, but she gets the point. And yet the enemy comes right behind and challenges the word of God. So understand this, that The attack on God's word is not new. It was with the very first two human beings that God created. It's from the very beginning. It's from the very same person who continues to cause this confusion today. Created being, being Satan. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. They fell to the lie. I mean, if if they really needed this to be more wise, God would say eat of this tree. But that's not the purpose of this tree. The purpose of the tree, one, that we see is that there would be obedience and trust in God. All they needed was God's word. 
They had it. They had life in God's word. If they would just listen to God's word, they had everything they needed, but yet they abandoned God's word. They fell for a lie. See how that's connected to today. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Catch this right here. Verse seven, because it's what we're going to be talking about tonight. It's man and woman's feeble, pitiful attempt to cover their nakedness. That's what we're looking at. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why do you think they hid themselves? Because there was nothing within them that now desired God. Think about that. They're not the two human beings that he created. They're now dead spiritually. And they're only doing what's now natural to their spiritual selves, to run from God. That's going to relate to what we're looking at tonight. It's, It's going to make perfect sense. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And understand this, as we look at all of these things tonight, this is still the question that every human being made in the image of God is going to have to answer in judgment. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And if we follow the story, we know this. He He asks him, who told you that you were naked? And then from there, um, he questions Adam, then he questions Eve, then he questions Satan, and then he, or he doesn't question Satan, he just starts handing down curses. Starting with Satan, then Eve, then Adam. Or vice versa. And, And in this time, we now are able to trace back where the ultimate problem is. But what if you don't believe God? What if you don't believe what we just read? And that's the majority of the world. See, to to me as a follower of Jesus Christ, it makes perfect sense, this depravity of the sexual revolution and why we can all fall into it when we reject God. And when you reject the scriptures, yes, there are plenty of things that we can run to that will lead us into this depravity. It doesn't take much at all. In fact, it's within us. We need to be saved from ourselves and we need to be saved in Christ. And so with this understanding, let's look at some helps just through history. So again, the purpose tonight is that you would see that this has been building up for for our culture. That's the goal is to see that what's going on in our country. You say, what's going on among us? It used to not be this way. It wasn't this way when I was growing up. Well, actually, yes, it was. It was. You're not that far removed. There were a lot of things that were going on that were promiscuous in your day. And yet, in all days here on earth, after the fall, but yet we do see that things have trended in a downward motion when it comes to the sexual revolution. So Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put some notes up here. I'm not going to put every note up there. So you may think, hey, I missed that. And did I tell you that you could go back on the website and you can listen to it? All right. Because I know you want to do that next week. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, uh, 1931 to current, uh, he gave two words, mimesis and poesis. And these two words are described in this way. 
A mimetic view regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning, and thus these human beings are required to discover that meaning or discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. So there's, there's something out there that is truth, and you are to conform yourselves to that truth. All right? But then poesis, by way of contrast, sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. Meaning can bring something into being that did not exist before. And so if we are to say there is no truth, we create our own truth. We bring something out of nothing. But what we must realize is that it was God who brought something out of nothing. We cannot bring anything out of nothing. As we see another philosopher, a German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, from 1844 to 1900, promoted philosophical claims in which human beings are called to transcend themselves, to make their lives into works of art, to take the place of God as self-creators and inventors, not the discoverers of meaning. So they're to be the creators. We are to be the inventors. And so as Carl Truman points out in his book, self-creation is a rooting part of our modern social imaginary. Self-creation. We're, we're creating ourselves. We're creating a name for ourselves, a being for ourselves. Who do we want to be? And yet it's gotten so out there that there are really no limits. And especially there are no limits if we don't have an authority to abide by. American sociologist Philip Reef, who we'll spend most of our time looking at tonight, uh, recently, well, last decade, 2006, passed away. He says that culture is a, another name for a design of motives directing the self outward toward those communal purposes in which alone the self can be realized and satisfied. This from his book, Triumph of the Therapeutic. He goes on to say that we learn who we are by learning to which we belong. So if you look at the culture around you, you adapt to that. This is how you understand who you are. This is of great significance for understanding grief since it is this emptiness on culture or emphasis on culture as that which directs the individual outward toward communal purposes that underlies his, and this is a big word, schematization of human history in terms of representative types figures whom he regards as embodying the spirit of their age. <laughs> I just read that and you said, what are you talking about? Let me explain it in more simple ways in which he did. He gives us four types of men. Four types of men that we've kind of seen through the last couple of centuries. Uh, first one, or actually more than a couple of centuries, let's just say the last 2,000 years. He talks about the political man. The po political man is even one that we could see in, in the New Testament. Uh, this was the culture of the political man of the sort set forth as an ideal in the thought of Plato and Aristotle. In contrast to the private man, the political man is the one who finds his identity in the activities in which he engages in the public life of the polis. So as he is involved in culture, 
Whatever that may be, whatever his position, that's how he identifies himself. The outwardly directed activity of political life is where he finds his sense of self. The political man, the political affairs of the community. He finds his place, that's how he identifies himself. He would say that this was very common in a period of time. Political man gave way to the second major type, that of the religious man. The man of the Middle Ages was precisely such a person, someone who found his primary sense of self and his involvement in religious activities, whether it be attending mass, celebrating feast days, taking part in religious processions, going on pilgrimages. This is how someone would relate to who they are as a religious man. And this was the more common man, as he would say, in somewhat in the Middle Ages, which then led to the economic man. This individual finds his sense of self in his economic activity, whether it be trade, production, the making of money. Reef himself saw economic man as an unstable and temporary category. Which finally we have the psychological man. This is the latest player on the historical stage, that which Reef dubs the psychological man, a type characterized not so much by finding identity in outward directed activities, as was true of the previous types that we just mentioned, but rather in the inward quest for personal psychological happiness a lot of this would just come flowing from what Ace just taught in the last three weeks. And so we have these different types of men. Now, you would say, don't these kind of intermingle and can't these be mixed throughout history? Yes. But he's just talking about major periods, major types. And as he's looking at today, he would say this last one pretty much defines overall our culture. What's inside is who you are. Look inside you and you will find who you are, right? Follow your heart and your heart will guide you to happiness. And these things that we've heard since we were kids and that our kids hear now. And so for the individual to be king, society must recognize the supreme value of the individual. So think about that. For the individual to be king, society must recognize the supreme value of the individual. And so what we're learning and and what we're seeing in our culture are people who are rising up in one fashion or another, and they were saying, this is the right way to live. You can't tell me how I live my life. Let me live the way I want to live. But there's a problem with that when you have multiple kings reigning in the same jurisdiction. There's conflict, there's battle, and we have that going on today. We have that going on with transgender movement. We have that going on with the LGBTQ. Uh, We have that going on with what does it mean to be a man today or what does it mean to be a woman today? What does it mean to be a Christian today? And we fail when we begin to look inwardly, but this is nothing new. This has been going on for centuries, building up, building up, until today. So Reeve goes on and and describes it in another way. He describes three cultural worlds, which will also help us to make sense of where we are today. So if if you're confused already and you're going, where are we? We we said you could identify as the political man or the religious man or the economic man or psychological man. And we see a mixture of all of these, but primarily we see more running to the psychological man today. But then what about three cultural worlds that... um, Reef speaks of, and 
that Truman writes in his book, and that's what I want to point out here, and, and using a help from the Gospel Coalition, I, I found this to be a very helpful article describing the three cultural worlds. And for me, it's just easy to put it in simple terms. And so when you see these come up, you'll see what I mean by that. To expose the problems of modern society, Reef organizes Western history chronologically according to three cultural worlds. And here they are. The first world is the pagan world. The pagan world, enchanted by its many gods. Following this was the second cultural world, one dominated by monotheism. And this era has only recently given way to the third cultural world, our present age, in which many wish to do away with gods altogether. So plain and simple, first world, many gods, second world, one God, third world, no God. Now this is not, of course, the order in which we were created and as God rules, right? I mean, there's always been one God from the Christian standpoint, but when we're looking at this culture, we look at this from a worldly standpoint, you see many false gods in the Old Testament, and we read many false gods that are prevalent today, and yet there was a shift to monotheism that we see in a period of time, something like the Reformation, and yet now... This third world where people say there are no gods. I'm God. I'm king. And so first world cultures tended to be pagan with many pantheons of whimsical and capricious gods. These societies and their cultural institutions centered on fate, as fate would have it. Even though one finds exceptions such as Socrates and Plato, first world influencers were magicians and conjurers upon whom society depended to manipulate the gods and change the course of history. So for us to have our own way, let's manipulate the gods. Second world cultures were cultures generally, though not exclusively monotheistic. Their conception of sacred order is one in which God the creator reveals himself to his creatures and endows the created world with life and significance. We're very familiar with this one. So then we go to the third world. The contrast to the first and second world cultures were uh, whose social order is undergirded by a world beyond the visible and a moral authority beyond the self. Third world cultures sever the connection between sacred order and social order, limiting the real world to the visible and locating moral authority in the self. Similarly, whereas each of the first two worlds sought to construct identity vertically from above, our third world rejects the vertical in favor of constructing identity horizontally from below. Reef knew the results of this rejection would be nihilism, where there is nothing sacred, there is nothing. Another definition, the rejection of all religious and moral principles and the belief that life is meaningless. And so all of this leads to something that he wrote of called death works. And we'll see these death works in just a moment. But as we look at the third world, we also see that the reformers themselves constantly made the point that they were not rejecting tradition so much as clarifying and reforming it in light of their understanding of God's word. So if, if someone were to give a rebuttal and say, well, what about Martin Luther? What about John Calvin? What about these reformers? Well, they didn't reject the traditions. They just knew that it was headed in the wrong direction. And they came seeking restoration 
And so sacred texts and ecclesiastical history were agreed on authorities for both. The question was not whether they were to be rejected, but how they were to be understood. This is in stark contrast with what Reef identifies as the destructive approach of third world elites to the past. Now, here's where I want you to tune in because we're seeing this on college campuses. We're seeing this in debate. Whereas it's a rather different approach. He claims that what they offer is not a revised or corrected history, a history reformed in light of new insights. Rather, it is the destruction of history and its replacement with nothing of any significant substance. Let's just get rid of it. We disagree. Let's tear it down. What are you going to put in its place? Well, I don't know. Let's get rid of it. It's evil. And that's all we've heard over and over again. Media just putting it out there, putting it out there, putting it out there. And we're just soaking it up going, yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess our history is just bad, all of it. And the sad thing is, is that when you talk to a majority of college students, what is the thing that they're going to tell you? Hey, do you like history? I can't stand history. I don't want to learn history. Why do I want to study history? Okay, I get it. Because maybe it's not as exciting as what's current and out there today. There's always this thought that what's happening today is more important than yesterday, right? And so the sad thing is, is that we're more fascinated with what's happening today than caring about what has happened before. And the reality is, and I think I can boldly say this, the reality is that the majority of Americans don't know history. We just don't care. As long as today is all right and fine, we don't need history until there are factions among us that start to rise up and get frustrated with the way things are, and some things that are wrong, in fact. But yet the remedy is to destroy, and there's nothing left to come behind it. I don't know what we do. We just need to get rid of it. This is not new, is what we're saying. Reef pointed us out that this has been in the making for centuries. In this third world, what marks the debates of the present day is that there are no such accepted authorities. And so the cultural game is marked by a continual subversion of stability rather than the establishment of greater stability through clarification of the social order in light of the sacred order. Carl Truman makes this, and this, is, this is amazing. If you want to write this down, as he points this out, the inward turn at the Enlightenment may not initially have killed God, but it did make him in practice in an increasingly unnecessary hypothesis. This inward turn, the turn to the individual, gave the individual value, a dignity that eventually came to stand as independent of any sacred order or set of divine commands. Maybe you want an example and this is one that's rather crude. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you it's, it's crude. 
but it will serve for this point. Reef mentions Andres Serranos. In his work from the 1980s, and I don't know if Curry's in here. I think Curry's in here. All right, do you know who I'm talking about when I say this guy? Okay. Um, from the 1980s, his work was Piss Christ, in which a crucifix is shown submerged in the artist's urine. Immediately when you hear that, you go, oh, how, how dare this guy? This was an example to that which Reef is pointing, a symbol of something deeply sacred to the second world that we talked about, monotheism. Presented in a form that degrades it and makes it utterly repulsive. Serranos is not simply mocking the sacred order in this work of art. He has turned it into something dirty, disgusting, and vile. The highest authority of the second world, God, is literally cast into the sewer, the lowest of low. The sacramental is made into the excremental. And so what is the result of this third world thinking? We don't need the church. Church can't tell us how to think, what to do. We're going to get to this when we talk about homosexuality and transgender. I mean, even when I say the word homosexuality, you may think that that's old-fashioned. And yet you don't hear our culture talking about that. Because when you mention that, they know where its place is found. It is actually found in the Bible. And we wouldn't want to go back there to be reminded of it. And there are many local churches, quote unquote, who don't want to go there and find it. They would rather submit themselves to a third world idea. What works best for you? What's better for you? How can we best care for you without addressing the the greatest need in them? It's their sin and the rebellion against God. And so when we allude to things and you hear things like this and you go, well, one day there's going to be upon the church this crime of hate speech. And you go, don't go there. You're, You're just being you're being too right-winged. You're being too conservative. Get off of Fox News. Quit listening to Tucker Carlson. But actually, you can see how this is really building and building and building. I mean, before long, what if it does become a crime to speak against the third world? If there is no authority, if there is no true authority, and not only is it enough just to put the authority aside and say, you can believe what you want to believe and I can believe what I want to believe, that's not enough. It's got to be said, you're wrong and I'm right. I have to be accepted as the third world because I am king. And if you reject this, then what am I?
And so religion is not rendered untrue. It is made distasteful and disgusting. A death work, as we mentioned earlier, can be anything that sets itself in opposition to the second world culture. And so modern day death works would would look really familiar to us. And they actually kind of sting because we've allowed them into our homes. We've allowed them into our lives naturally. They're TV sitcoms. And you're saying, great, yeah, I know what you're going to do. You're going to say we can't watch any TV. Are we going back there? I mean, we were kind of there in the late 80s, early 90s with all the legalism. I mean, are we headed back that direction? What's going to happen? I think we're on kind of a little, what do you call that, a seesaw, where we go back and forth with some of our convictions. I get that. But we have to own up to what are the things that we allow into our homes and that we watch and that we make excuses for that have dulled our senses They go directly against Scripture. See, next week we'll talk about pornography, but it's not just that we pull up something on our phones and go to a direct pornographic site as it is we're watching TV sitcoms that go directly against there being one God who created the world and making a mockery of his creation, and making a mockery of how he's fashioned the home. And it's been made into comedy. Will and Grace was one of the first TV sitcoms that made homosexuality funny. To dull the senses that here we are 20 years later, 25 years later, and Christians will say, oh, I love that show. They're so funny. And they made homosexuality comedy. So it dulls the senses to later that we accept it because it doesn't seem so threatening. Meaning that we accept it as normal behavior instead of recognizing that it goes against Scripture. That God has a better plan than for somebody to live in that type of sin. Sitcoms, movies, newspaper columns, as we'll look at next week, pornography. I mean, these seem like the the common ones that we would throw darts at. Pornography itself is a cultural artifact that takes human sexual activity and divorces it from any moral content. As we'll see next week, you become the god of your fantasy, king. Yet sexual activity in a second world has a sacred significance as part of a relationship, as part of a personal history, as something that, given its connection to reproduction, links past to future and has the necessary precondition for culture. We really, when we're considering death works, we really have to see how we've treated marriages and and how... It's so easy now to just get a divorce if marriage is not working out. To how we see the home function to where our kids make the rules for the parents. I mean, I think we live in a culture right now where 
kids pretty much dictate what parents are going to do. And we go, but I can't do anything about it. The reason why is because we're not submitting ourselves to the ultimate authority of God's word. And so instead of going there, we choose not to go there, and we're looking around at what everybody else is doing, and we're all headed in that direction of this life is where we're the ultimate authority. It's, it's where friends joke about being sexually immoral. Where it doesn't matter if you're married or not, and if you're not married, you can just have sex because it's just so hard not to. Well, I mean, what are we supposed to do? All of these are death works. All of these lead us away from trusting and obeying God's word. The important thing about death works is that they subvert and destroy the sacred order without really having anything with which to replace it. And so that would be a good place to stop tonight. But as we lay this out, I hope some of this was clear. If you need some clarity, please, let's, let's talk about it. I mean, this is it's a lot of new ground, but also it makes a lot of sense with understanding how to compartmentalize some of the things that we're seeing around us. Um, as we roll into next week, I think it kind of naturally rolls into uh, the role of pornography. Uh, we definitely need to talk about this. <laughs> um, so come back next week. Um, there are going to be some things that I say as we go through this that may come off insensitive. It's not meant to be. We just have to realize that there are many things, these death works that we've talked about that are so prevalent, we've gotten so used to them that when we had to confront them or when they confront us, it's, it's tough. And so just know my heart in that. Like, I get no joy and satisfaction in pulling a gotcha or, ooh, I really, really did it there. No, because I understand these death works as well. And so we're talking about this so that we'll be aware of them, so that we'll know how to call them out, so that we will live more godly lives, glorifying the one who made us. Amen? And so... It's good. Um, so I hope you come back next week, and we'll continue. Uh, after a couple weeks, Joby's going to address um, Black Lives Matter, or, or first he's going to uh, go with racism, which I think uh, some of the conflict and struggles that we have with racism, not all of it, but some of it that we have, will we'll flow through these things and thoughts as well. And then he'll come back at the end of it um, after we discuss uh, transgenderism, um, gender dysphoria, and we'll look at Black Lives Matter because a big thrust behind Black Lives Matter, although it was big in 2020 and a big push and, and definitely a very sensitive time, is that we would care for those who are being oppressed. Um, if you were to go look at their mission statement, bound within there, you would see is the destruction of the home. The very thing we just talked about. And so Joey's going to make sense of that and he's going to bring a lot of clarity at the end, all right? So let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. 
And Lord, thank you that we could have this time together. Lord, it's just heavy. I mean, it lays heavy, Lord, because we do live in a world that is so sinful. And we're about to go home, and we're going to have choices to make tonight. If we're going home and we're by ourselves, we're going to have some, some choices to make when we're, when we're at home with nobody else is around. It's just us and you. So, Father, may we be men and women who honor you behind closed doors. Father, when we go home, we may have kids who need to get to bed and they don't want to go to bed and they need to have a bath and they don't want to have a bath. And, Lord, we can get frustrated and we just want to wind down in whatever way is just comfortable to us. Whatever that is, as we faithfully minister to our families, may we wind down in a godly way tonight. And Father, as we've looked at these things and, and we've been made aware that this is nothing new, but actually there's been quite the buildup through history, and we're going to see that so much more in the coming weeks, Father. Fill us with wisdom and how we are to go and approach the world and present Christ. It will, it will do no good to just shout where the world is wrong. You have called us to be the light. The light does reveal what's hidden in the darkness. But the light also reveals who you are. And so, Father, may we be faithful to spread your word, to preach Christ, Christ crucified, and to be unashamed of these things. And lastly, Father, may we be students of the word. If we find ourselves sitting in our seats going, what is all of this? And is this really necessary for us to go down these roads? And Father, may we just keep it simple. May we just stay in your word and may we be familiar with who you are. And so when we encounter things that are unfamiliar and do not match up to who you are and what your word has called us to do, we'll recognize it and we'll quickly fall in line with what you've called us to do. So Father, thank you that all of this is made possible through Christ. We love you, Lord, and we ask your blessings as we leave this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.